This is Isaac Arthur of Kodo Design, and you're listening to the Beer Mighty Things Podcast. Welcome into the Beer Mighty Things Podcast. It's what you listen to while you brew. It's what's in your ears as you drink and make beers. Today, we are welcoming in the founder of the Align 5 Companies, CEO of Scaling Up Coaches and Apple Tree Answers, and overall serial entrepreneur, Mr. John Ratliff. John, what's going on, man? How's it going, Kyle? Good to see you. This is uh this is exciting. You've uh, you've done a lot in your life, and uh, looking to see if we can't peel back that onion a little bit. Yeah, man, happy to. Anytime we can share with entrepreneurs, it's a win. That's what you know. the The goal of the podcast here is just you know, a lot of folks are either new to being an entrepreneur. Sometimes you get stuck. You know, sometimes you are kind of stuck in your old ways or you have been doing this a long time and you're successful or, you know, but always just like to throw new ideas out, especially at the beginning of a year. Here's what you do. Here's what we can implement. Here's what we should change. And, and you know, these conversations are always a lot of fun. So thanks, man. Awesome. Cool. Good to be here. What was, uh, what was the first business you started? How old were you? Was it a lemonade stand or what'd you do? <laughs> so the first, the first thing I ever remember, my parents have kind of shared with me, we went on a, excuse me, went on a family trip to South Carolina. I think it was Myrtle Beach. And we stopped on the way home and there were like cotton fields everywhere. And we like picked a bunch of cotton plants and I brought them home and went door to door as a four-year-old trying to sell them to our neighbors, which (laughs) was hilarious. But the the first, you know, I did the traditional stuff. I had a paper route, mowed lawns. And then I did what, what, you know, you hear all the entrepreneurial stories. I hired other kids to do the the mowing and I went out and did the selling. I hired yeah. other kids to deliver the papers. And um, so that, that was kind of the early days. And then in college started a, uh, just kind of a marketing company. Um, we had like a recorded message that bars would pay to advertise on. And, you know, we had phone lines and if you wanted to know what was going on, hmm. this tells you how old I am, by the way, Kyle, this was before it. anything even related to the internet, but yeah. yeah, you could call this and, you know, we had about 20 bars that would, you know, we'd update the, you know, what bands were playing where and what specials and okay. that kind of stuff. Kind of like Seinfeld movie phone, but. Yeah, uh, I was going to say movie phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> nice. <laughs> we're watching Seinfeld this weekend. Um, what college did you go to? Uh, University of Delaware. Nice. Blue Hens. Yeah. So did you grow up in uh, this area? I did. I grew up in Chad's Ford, uh, right. Unionville High School, and and then. Was I was the kid that was going to go three thousand miles away from home, and somehow ended up in Delaware, and then started a business right out of college um, okay. in Media, Pennsylvania, a little cell phone store with uh, used to be called Metrophone. Now it's obviously Comcast, but um, I was twenty-two, and that took off and opened a second store in Paoli, Pennsylvania, and then got into the call center business from there, and that was it. My my fate was sealed. I was a I was a Philadelphia area local for for the rest of the ride because the businesses were here. So, so never thought I would stay in the area, but I'm so 52 you, and I'm still here. So you're the founder of Comcast, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you probably wouldn't be talking to me if you were. Oh, very cool. So you just always, I mean, what was it about starting a business that you liked versus going to work for somebody else? You know, I I was always the kid that. Um, looked for shortcuts and everything like I, you know, you look back at mowing the lawn. I remember at one point I tried to figure out a way to have two push mowers and, you know, tie them to ropes so you could cut twice as fast. And I I think I was always just wired to 
like look at novel ways to do things. And, um, and with that comes a pretty fierce level of independence. I actually, um, when I was growing up, there was a little ski area around here called Chad's peak. If you remember Chad's peak, I do not, uh, you could get from the top to the bottom in about 13 seconds. It wasn't very big, but right in Chad's forward. And, um, I started working there when I was 13 and it was really the only job, um, that I ever had that was kind of a, you know, hourly with a boss. And, um, but I learned a lot there by the time I was a senior in high school, uh, I was running in a place. I had 25 people that reported to me and they actually let me, uh, they let me take over the snack bar and I actually rented the snack bar from the owners and ran it as a business. So it was just kind of always in my blood and, and I think I'm unemployable for the most part. So what <laughs> well, else are you going to do? and you're unemployable so yeah fine you know i got out of college and i i I do urge people to um you know go work for somebody and see what your thoughts are and then a lot of times you know like that was what i did work for somebody else and see what you like and what you don't like be it you know a big corporation or smaller and kind of get a feel for it Um, i kind of did that uh, for a few years because you're you're supposed to right get out of college get a job and you know benefits right and uh so I did that, but I also, you know, I learned what I liked from that, but I also learned what I didn't like. And, you know, to your point of being unemployable, like I want to be able to do kind of what I want when I want. Um, and if I'm doing what I want, I'm going to do it well, and I'm probably going to do it more hours than the typical, you know, requirement. So that's why I find like just being that entrepreneurial spirit is important. But yeah, to your point, like you're going to do it your way. And if, if somebody wants them, you to do it their way, it's, you know, they could ruffle some feathers there. Yeah. And you know, not everyone's wired for the risk component of it. And you know, it's, there is a lot to be said. My one job I did have out of college, right out of college was commission only sales, which essentially is like as close to being an entrepreneur as you can get without. And then I did that for six months for another wireless company and then opened my own from there. So I did. I did have the high school job, and then the uh, the six months stint as a commission only guy. And then, and, and I think the greatest gift you can give somebody if they're wired the right way is autonomy and the the ability to kind of call your own shots and mm-hmm. and listen. If you if you win, you win. If you lose, you lose. And you you know you figure it out from there. But. Um, you know, I've got, I've got three kids, 2018 and 14, and they're all looking like they've got the entrepreneurial gene as well. And I think, you know, obviously you grow up with an entrepreneurial parent, you're going to go one way or the other, you're going to run as far away from it as you can, or you're going to embrace it. And, and they, you know, they, they got to see the autonomy side and I think that's really appealing to them. So, so to that point, did you have parents that were entrepreneurial or did they, did you have someone in your life that, you know, kind of said, Hey, go for it. Or here, here's a cool thing that you can, you know, follow down the road. And so I had, I had what I consider to be the exact opposite of that. Um, my dad was actually a C-suite level executive at a fortune 500 size company. Okay. Um, reported to the CEO, ran global sales and all the stuff that comes with it. You know, the, the expense account and the, you know, entertaining and flying around the world. And, and, you know, it's, it was fascinating. I interned with them in college um, for three summers with the company that he ran sales for. And, you know, I happened to share with some guys that I really wanted to kind of be my own boss and build my own company from scratch. And they all, and, and this was back in the 
late eighties, early nineties. And there were sales guys there literally making seven figures, million yeah. two, million five, which back then was a, a enormous sum of money. But, and they all told me I was crazy. And, you know, why don't you, you're good at sales. Why don't you get in the sales thing and look at all the money we're making. And, yeah. um, so yeah, it was, it was fascinating juxtaposition of those two, but, uh, I ended up going the other direction and knock on wood so far. So, so good. I run into those guys these days sometimes and I still laugh at them and, and tell them, Hey, I think, uh, I think you guys are wrong and I made the right call, but, um, it's pretty, but it's not, you know, it's not for everyone, right? It's, you have to have, you have to be wired a certain way to, to have the uncertainty and not get crushed by it. Absolutely. I was curious, actually thinking about being wired a certain way, um, and ask what month you're born in <laughs> what's your what's your sign like what uh do you are you kind of in that zone of you know i feel like a scorpio is what i am and i'm like i i feel like i can kind of do whatever you know yeah i'm actually right before i'm a, a libra i was born october okay. 12th is that the lion libra's the scales i think i okay. don't know I don't, I don't know the symbol but if you read about libras they're kind of you know helpful good with people um I kind of fit the bill for what that sign is about. Yeah. Um, which is good and bad because there's some stuff about that sign that gets you taken advantage of every once in a while, okay. and, which, you know, it's treat like a kindness or weakness people. kind of situation. Yeah, exactly. A little bit. So, okay. um, but I, you know, again, it's, it's all worked out so far yeah. and that's been a core theme in, in all of our companies too. We've, we really, or I've really tried to build businesses that put people first, customer second. Yeah. Um, and you know, it doesn't always work and there were a whole lot of hard lessons to learn along the way, but, um, I really believe, and I've had arguments with friends of mine that run businesses that it's customer first or it's customers, employees are equal shareholders. And I've always mm-hmm. thought it's employee first, customer second. Well, if you don't have any employees, um, then, you know, none of it really functions as it should. Well, and, and take it a step further, it, and you can tell, I, I like to joke when I walk into a hotel, any any brand anywhere in the world, in 60 seconds in the lobby, I can tell you how good or bad the general manager is. And mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if it's a Ritz-Carlton or a Holiday Inn. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's this idea that you spend millions, and in some cases in corporate America, billions of dollars externally to drive brand and, and give an image to your brand but if you don't spend time and, and effort internally to get your employees to fall in love with your brand, they fall in love with it first. And then they're going to deliver the customer experience that obviously the customer is going to love the brand because the employees do. Yeah. And if the employees don't, all the all the dollars spent externally in the world and you can't co- you can't coerce people into delivering a great brand experience. They either believe in it or they don't. I don't think we spend nearly enough money internally on employees. And you feel it, you you know, 60 seconds into whatever store it is, whatever brand it is, hotel or whatever, you feel it. Um, yeah. You get one shot at a first impression, and if you blow it, you blow it, right? You're not coming yeah. back to the place. And, and I've been to some of the best brands in the world and yeah. knew there were bad GMs, and I've been to some places you would never have thought. I, the greatest hotel experience of my life ever, and I've been to thousands of them, was at a place called cancun palace in cancun mexico part of palace resorts like a mm-hmm. mid-tier all-inclusive style brand we had an event there that's the only reason i was even there i had the single greatest hotel experience i've ever had 
And it was so good that I was actually the president of our trade association. It was our annual meeting we were having. It was so good. I had our event planner go find the GM because I had to meet him. It was unbelievable. And, and you know. What were some of those expect, details? What were some of those details that were different from other hotels? What were those? So one of the little well, things. It, it was all about attention to detail. Like you knew the, the GM was obsessed with attention to detail. And you know how hotels used to have house phones all throughout where, you know, if you needed the front desk, there's phones in the lobby and in the hallways and stuff. And there wasn't a house phone at that hotel that didn't have the cord of the phone perfectly wrapped around the 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 phone would be on yeah. and the cord was perfectly wrapped around the phone. And I had a I had a team of five or six people with me when we were down there. We came <clears throat> we came out one morning, we were walking to the event space, and I said, I said, watch, I'm gonna take this phone off the wall so the cord's hanging down, and in <laughs> under 90 seconds it's gonna be back. Sure enough, I did it. I took it off, and a maintenance guy happened to walk by, noticed it, didn't say a word. He just put it right back to where it was. And <laughs> it was it was all attention to detail. I I was I was the speaker at this event because I was the president. We were having an awards ceremony, and I was out by the pool. And it's Mexico, and you know it's hot, and I'm mm-hmm. you know in dress pants and a dress shirt, and probably sweating my ass off, and um. <laughs> And I'm walking around with a handheld, wireless handheld, and I'm walking among the tables and talking about the awards. And um, there was a, a busser that was cleaning up after lunch one of the tables and happened to notice that I was sweating my ass off. And I didn't even notice that she just sort of disappeared. And, you know, she was kind of in the background with five or six other people that were busting tables. And without saying a word in about, again, 90 seconds later, a tray of hand-rolled hand towels covered in ice appeared at the table right in front of me. Yeah. And nobody said anything. She just very quietly put it down. And I thought, all right, that's paying attention. Like somebody here has gotten this group of people to notice everything. And this was probably a minimum wage worker in Mexico and delivered the perfect moment experience at, at, at when I needed it pretty bad without interruption, and, just being aware, paying attention. Exactly. And that's, you know, we, we just, um, we just finished a book. I'm, I'm a big book guy and we read collectively at a line five and we just finished a book called unreasonable hospitality. Okay. And it's about a guy that was in the restaurant business trained under Danny Meyer, but it's applicable across the whole spectrum of, of business. And, that's his that's his whole thing and unreasonable hospitality it just talks about just paying that little extra bit of attention and finding a moment to create an experience it's about the and, experience. That's the way yeah it, it's an exceptional read i'm a, I'm a huge fan of it okay um, that was something at the end you know i was going to ask you you know recommended books um so that'll be one of them but we can come back to that as well yeah sure i got a bunch so how do, how do we lead right so you know that person who's running that place i mean uh, those, those employees could be doing out of fear. If they don't do it, they can lose their job or there's something else, right? Lead with passion or lead with just values or, or what is that that gets them to follow that's not fear? I'm a, I'm a huge believer in trying to, trying to help people see that they can be part of something bigger than themselves. And, and you know, I just wrote about this. I send the, 
weekly email out. I just wrote I about those emails. They're terrific. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah. Glad someone's reading them. Um, <laughs> One open a week. That's me. Yeah. I just wrote about the difference between motivation and inspiration. And mm-hmm. there's this myth that we can motivate people. And I strongly believe you can't motivate anyone to do anything. You can't coerce them. You can't, you know, they're motivated. They have to comes, want to. Yeah. It comes from within. And I, I think it's a big problem in leadership is, you know, we're, we're giving rah-rah speeches and we're really trying to manipulate people's behavior. You know, you walk around and then, you know, not to single out Google, but they were kind of the poster child for it. You know, all the ping pong tables and posters in the world up on the wall yeah. aren't going to motivate anybody. Yeah. But what Google's created is an atmosphere where people come to work and feel like they can change the world there. And they're part of something bigger than themselves <clears throat> and they're inspired and they're inspired to do the work. They're inspired to stay and create, you know, masterful things. And, and they're inspired by an idea. And I think, I don't care what business you're in, if it's insurance or co-working space or manufacturing, I mean, look at, you know, well, Tesla's a terrible example, but you know, <laughs> look at some of the, look at some of the companies that look really boring they've got a workforce that's super inspired. There's a, there's a semi-famous story and who knows how true or not true it is, but I've seen enough of them to think maybe it is true that um, there used to be a restaurant chain called Chili's. There's still some of them around, not very many, but um, they were famous for, you know, if you wanted to get a chili pepper, their logo tattoo, they would pay for it. And, <laughs> and hundreds of former Chili's employees have the Chili's logo tattooed on them i mean that's you know that's a restaurant chain yeah people are so into the brand internally they're willing to put it on themselves permanently now i might second guess that decision but you know that that's a workforce that feels like they're part of something and then chili pepper for whatever reason (laughs) meant something and we can you can do that in any business but you gotta you gotta have a purpose you gotta have a why i think you gotta you've got to get people bought into an idea. Yeah. And I, I think the foundation for that is you got to communicate. I think that's probably what's lacking the most right now in, in kind of the, the business world, certainly in the growth company world. So you got entrepreneurs with their hair on fire running a hundred miles an hour and they don't stop to take the time to communicate their vision. And, and there's a lot of confused, probably really good people out there that just don't connect with what's going on. If you can get people's hearts connected to kind of your, your North star, then their performance goes through the roof. Yeah. I was just thinking about uh, Simon Sinek and it talks about his golden circle, right? You just talked about, you know, it's not what you do. It's why you do it. Um, That's what people want. That's what people buy. If you're, if you're being just an advocate of Chili's, right, you're going to want to come to work and customers are going to want to come there and come back and tell people and have events there. And that overall generates revenue. Um, yeah, and, the, and they communicate the why like that's the you know yeah. the, just about every decent business has a decent purpose and a decent why but sometimes it's tied up in the head of the entrepreneur or the senior leadership team and it, it never makes it out well sometimes it just doesn't it doesn't mean anything right you can put it on a poster and put it on the wall it doesn't mean that it's being lived daily it doesn't mean that it's being conveyed or talked about it's just words on the wall and eventually you just start walking by it and don't even notice it anymore yeah, exactly. I'm a, I'm a huge, huge believer in core values. I think I've seen what they can do inside companies, including my call center company that we had, Apple Tree. We had 650 employees. And 
I watched us go through a transformation where we didn't have a core values kind of mindset and then we created them and then we really put them to work in the business. And the, the change that that made at our company was mind boggling. And by the time we sold that company, um, there, there wasn't a, a human there that couldn't recite all seven of them and tell you a great story about what they meant, like what they really meant to us. And they were part of our DNA. We didn't, we didn't hire without core values. We didn't fire without core values. We didn't assess people's performance without tying it back to core values. I mean, it was literally part of, you know, it was almost like our fingerprint. Um, and it was super powerful. That's interesting. Yeah, so a lot of that gets lost. I was just thinking about there's a book called The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. You read that yeah, one? Yeah, yeah. I know it well. So that's a good one. We tried, you know, a prior company I worked for it was, you know, we made everybody – we offered everybody to read it and make everybody read it, but you should read it, right? If you want to be part of it and, you know, just talking yeah. about the, the white cloth, white tablecloth restaurants in New York. And again, coming back to those details of a fork falls on the floor, or, you know, sometimes those um, critics will come in and place the fork on the floor. So you can't hear it right to see who picks it up and, and things like that. So just those little details. Yeah. I'll tell you one more thing on that too, that I think is and it's maybe a bit of a caution or warning for entrepreneurs that are new to the idea Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, it, we coach about 4,000 companies through scaling up our coaches organization. And I've been around 10,000 entrepreneurs and this idea of creating a great culture, it gets a lot of buzz, but it's a, it starts with a mindset and it has to start with a mindset at the senior leadership team. And if the mindset is, Hey, these people are showing up to make our dreams a reality. We owe it to them to, create a great experience, then you're on the right path. If the mindset is, Hey, I've heard, you know, if we could get our culture a little bit better, we're going to make more money or less turnover or whatever, but their mindset's not right. Mm-hmm. Then you're going to go through all the activities and they can be the exact same activities that the right mindset entrepreneur has. But if you don't believe it to your core, that it's your responsibility to do it, then the perception is going to be, you're trying to manipulate your employee's behavior and it can actually have a counter effect where yesterday when they didn't feel manipulated and the culture was mediocre, they'd come in and do mediocre work. Now they feel manipulated and you're trying to fake it. They're, they're going to come in totally motivated, but they're going to be motivated to make your life a living hell because <laughs> they're resentful of the fact you're trying to manipulate them. So you're better off doing nothing around culture unless you 100% believe that it's the right thing to do. And I've seen it. I can't tell you how many. And that's the GM situation at the hotel again. Yeah. Some of them are, are faking it because their corporate office told them to and their employees hate them because they feel manipulated and others believe it. And the employees will run through a brick wall. So, right. yeah. yeah, it just becomes a job then. Right. It's just, all right, we're going to show up to this job. And it's, you know, the minutiae versus yeah. believing in the fact that you can create a ex- wonderful experience for somebody else. Yeah, that's a big one for me. Yeah. All that makes sense. Okay. Talking about risk taking and um, kind of being an entrepreneur, being on your own. You're, you're a pilot. You've been a pilot. Yeah. 23 years. Okay. How'd you, how'd you find that? Were you, is that something you were into as a kid or? So uh, hopefully my brother won't listen to this podcast, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) my brother went to college and, and college and he did not quite get along as well as they should have. So Two years in, he, he, we actually, I helped. He's my younger brother, but not by very much. But 
I helped extract him from a bad fraternity hazing situation and pulled him out of school. And um, he kind of bounced around for a little and needed something to do and ended up um, becoming a flight instructor. So he went to flight safety down in Florida. We both had always had a dream about flying airplanes. So he went down, he got his instructor rating, and uh, I was just getting my call center company off the ground and had the brilliant idea to buy a little airplane. He would, he would, I'd get five of my friends to split the cost. He would train the six of us. So he'd have a job and I'd have an airplane. And so I, I recruited five friends, bought the airplane. They all bailed out. I was the only student he ever had. He soloed me and then he took a job with SAP and I was stuck with an airplane and no light, <laughs> no instructor, but, um, but I found another instructor and finished up with him and then went on and did a bunch more with it. And now about 5,700 hours. Um, I fly a really cool airplane called a TBM. It's a turboprop, so 31,000 feet, 400 miles an hour. Philly yeah. to Miami in about three hours, so a little slower okay. than an airline, but not much. The airline's what, like 556, 600? Uh, the airline, yeah, with no wind, no tailwind, 440 yeah. knots, so 520 yeah. miles an hour. Okay. Yeah, so I'm about 75% airline speed, but... Um, great way to travel, uh, unbelievable experiences in the airplane. So John, tell me if it's true. I, you know, it seems that pilots enjoy turbulence because it gives them something to do. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. I, you know, what pilots really enjoy, especially airline guys. Cause that, I mean, private pilots probably do the most work and then corporate pilots do a fair amount of planning and work. Airline pilots don't do anything. They don't flight plan. They don't check weather. I mean, they'll check weather, but they've got a whole dispatch department that does yeah. all their work. So those guys love it when the weather gets really bad, when the when the fog is 200 feet above the ground and you've got to fly the airplane right to that decision height. And, and if you can't see the runway, you've got to go around. Like that's, yeah, they like, they like the challenge. I've got a buddy who was an F-18 pilot in the military. Now he flies for Southwest and, his uh his running joke and it's it's not a joke is on an average flight he uses about two percent of his capability as an airline pilot and he said on the toughest flight of the year he'll use about ten percent of his capability so there some of those guys are pretty bored flying yeah. airlines around so interesting yeah huh. by the way you know how you know how you know someone's a pilot <laughs> I read your email yeah go ahead they'll tell you. <laughs> 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 I feel like most people tell you anything, but yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that, that decision-making uh, loop. And let's talk about uh, Mr. Colonel John Boyd. So he has, I have his book in the back here. Um, I have not read it, but we do cover it. I, the reason why I, I have it is because, um, you know, one of my sales coaches, one of my mentors, we talk about it. We talk about the OODA loop. We talk about um, just how incredible he was. He had never lost in any type of training or combat. And then, so is he kind of a role model for you? And then using that OODA loop, let's talk about that and um, how that kind of, I believe that helped you figure out your business a little bit, like when COVID hit? Yeah, it helped us a ton during COVID. So I I love the OODA loop and I'll walk you through kind of what it is, but, and and you already know, but we'll walk your listeners through. Yeah, what for it. listeners, I, yeah. I, I love the OODA loop as a thinking tool. Like, and I, I'm a big fan. I, I, done all sorts of programs, strategic coach and others. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan as an entrepreneur and kind of thinking about how you think. And that's what strategic coach is about. How, how you, 
thinking about your thinking is his is Dan Sullivan's tagline. So the OODA loop as a uh, as a thought tool, I think, is exceptional. So it's O O D A, and the first O is observation. And so imagine we'll use we'll use John Boyd as the example, and this is how he teaches it. By the way, this is applicable in business. Yep. Litigation attorneys use it a lot, and, and we'll get into some of that. But the first O is just observe. And the key to that observation is with no bias. So we always bring our bias to bear when we're when we're in the decision-making process. And it's his take, it's John Boyd's take that those biases cloud our ability to see clearly kind of everything that exists. And if we bring bias, we may not notice certain things and we may overvalue other things that we see. So he wants to take full assessment of the environment. Where's the sun? Is it cloudy? Where's his wingman? Where are the opponents? Is he high? Is he low? Is he fast or slow? What, what orientation or what, you know, is he banking the airplane? Like all, he takes it all in. And then once he's, once he feels like he has a full kind of data set observationally of all the things that are around, only then does he bring his bias to bear and he orients himself to where he fits into the environment that he just deserves. So observed. So, so where, where does he fit in to that, to that broader picture? And that's when you start to bring relative experience and you start to bring some pattern recognition from the past and you use all that that relative experience pattern recognition and and kind of what you know to orient yourself to what you've observed and then make a decision all right what am i going to do next what's the next best move to make and immediately upon making the decision you take action Hmm. the action might be accelerate slow down bank break fire do whatever it is but then you instantly go back into observation mode with no bias again. Mm. And the idea is the time that it takes to move through the loop. If you can shorten the time and you can get inside your opponent's loop, and that's what he really talks about is the reason he never lost is he was able to accelerate that loop and be inside his opponent's ability to think the way he was. So if it took the opponent six seconds to work through the loop and he could do it in five, okay. he was already taking yeah. action and back to observing while the, while the other guy was still trying to decide what to do. Mm. And he just, his whole thing was how do we tighten that circle? How do we, how do we get it faster and faster? And, you know, I love giving the example of if you watch, you watch a great NBA player take a three pointer and they stand there and they admire the ball in the air after the, the action is to shoot a three pointer You'll watch a great player stand there and admire the shot, but the world class, the best in the world, the top 10 guys, they're already, they don't care where that ball's going to go. They're already observing the new situation, which is the ball's in the air. Where are my opponents? How am I oriented? And then they're able to make a decision before the ball even gets to the rim about where they're going to go next. And maybe, maybe they know they're going to miss based on the shot or they think it's going to miss or, they're estimating where the rebound's going to be and they're inside their opponent's loops. And that, that's what makes, that's what's, that's the difference between great and exceptional. 
And that was John Boyd. He was exceptional. Like you said, never lost. And they called him five-second Boyd because on average it took about five seconds to defeat his opponent because he was inside their loop. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have a really good friend. Her name's Martha McSally. She was the first female in the world to fly a combat mission in a fighter jet. Um, she flew the A-10 Warthog. And I've had, I've had some of the most amazing conversations with her about the OODA loop. And she's like, you have no idea, you know, if you're, if you, if you're on a target and you're, you're coming down the glide slope on a target, like all you're trying to do is get that cycle to go faster and faster and faster and faster. And, uh, she's a badass. I mean, a real badass, but, um, and you know, actively in combat in Afghanistan had to, you know, shoot at stuff to get, to get her friendly guys out and, she said the OODA loop was like drilled into their soul. And it was, it was like, like totally, she mentions it. She wrote a book called dare to fly. And she actually talks about John Boyd and the OODA loop in the book. So pretty cool, pretty cool to to know it. And then to have someone that can really put you there and and kind of talk you through it. So, yeah. And I mean, that has obviously lasted for years and years, right? Decades. I mean, he was, he was a fighter pilot in the fifties. Yeah. So. And now people are using this to run businesses and, and the army adopted it, right? And the Navy and just everybody, uh, you know, military-wise, but business-wise. Um, and this was a new concept to me probably just about three years ago. I'm almost wondering why other people aren't uh, talking about this more. I, yeah, I probably heard it, you know, six or seven years ago. And it, it just resonates right away. It's, a, it's the no-bias part that makes yep. all the difference. Because we, we, all, we all look at situations decide what we're going to do, take action, look again. But I think where we get hung up is we bring too much relative experience into the decision-making, into the pre-decision-making. It's it's strange that this is just, you know, kind of becoming known now or talked about more. How do we improve the speed of the loop? Is it by taking action more or is it by just repetition? Or, or what are your thoughts on that? I think the discipline around taking action as soon as you make a decision that you get, you get a short, like no second guess like that. He would say that even if you made a bad decision, you'd take action and, and he wouldn't second guess Yeah, and then wallow in. Well, that wasn't necessarily the right action to take. And then the not admiring the shot. That's where I think most people get hung up. They take action and they're, you know, they're celebrating, they're patting themselves on the back. They're staring at the ball arcing yeah. through the air. And you got to get right back to the orientation piece. I mean, the observation piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, certainly, you know, repetition and experience, the faster you can orient, the faster you can decide. But I, but I think the real gains are made on the other, the other half of the loop in the, in the time between deciding and acting. And then most importantly, the time between acting and, and observing again. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, we used it in the pandemic. Um, you know, we have 225 coaches around the world and, um, with scaling up. And, you know, Vern Harnish wrote the book Scaling Up. Vern and I were in Florida, my place in the Florida Keys, doing a CEO boot camp when COVID kind of looked like it was going to be a thing. The NBA and the NHL shut their seasons down while we were there. So we knew coming back that, you know, we were, we were going to have to really step up our game and, Nobody knew what was coming, obviously. <clears throat> and um, we noticed entrepreneurs kind of went into one of three modes. Um, there was one group that 
just had to be in motion, right? They had to be in orient and decide mode, even though they didn't have, none of us had a good picture of, of what was coming. We could speculate, but they yeah. just needed to be in motion and they needed to be busy and sending emails and setting up zoom calls. And I don't know what we're doing, but let's just do something, do something. Right. And, and then another group was deer in the headlights. Like they were, they couldn't observe one of my favorite sayings, negativity blocks, creativity. Sure. And I believe that the most important skill now and, and since March of 2020 through today, the most important skill an entrepreneur can possess is their creativity because that's what got us out of the, the mess. Sure. And they were so stuck and so scared and the fear and the negativity just shut off their creativity. They were deer in the headlights. And then the third group, and what I think was the group that was the most successful, just took a step back. And they said, all right, well, there's, you know, there's nothing to do. We're not in the office. We're not, you know, let's just, let's just take it all in. Let's, let's get as much relative information as we can and then let's get oriented to how we fit in. So with our community, we went from, we used to have a call once a quarter. Um, and then in the beginning, we went down to, I think we were doing two or three calls a week with the coaches globally. And those calls were followed the OODA loop. Week one, let's just gather data. Let's have a conversation. What are you seeing? In, we have coaches all over the globe. What are you seeing in China? What are you seeing in Europe? What are you seeing in Australia? It was all different. But the patterns, and again, no bias, the patterns started to be pretty clear. And then the next week was around orientation or the next call, same week. All right, well, how do we fit in? What? How can we serve clients here? What, what are we seeing with, you know, what what relative experience do we bring to bear here? And when have we seen something like this before? And then, then coaches were making decisions, taking action, and then we'd get back on a call. And we really, and we talked a lot excessively incessantly about the OODA loop yeah. on these calls, but we followed that methodology and we got faster and faster and faster. And our coaches got more. Cause one thing that when you shorten the loop and you get really good at it, it brings confidence. Mm. Confidence drives creativity and creativity drives solutions. So they were able to go to their clients and be confident and work together with their clients to, to be creative and create solutions and we don't have the we don't have the real data, but we have a ton of anecdotal scaling up methodology coach clients through the pandemic outperform their peers in most cases five or ten to one. Well, I mean, it was absolutely dramatic because one of the things scaling up brings is a is a meeting rhythm and a communication cadence. Those were already in place for all those companies. So while while some people were scrambling to figure out, you know, how do we set up Zoom and work remote and do all these things, yeah. the scaling up coach clients, they were they were already there because that was part of their DNA. Okay. Yeah, maybe they had to go to a Zoom call instead of in person, but they had those meeting rhythms and cadence. And then the coaches could come in and say, "All right, well, let's think about, let's look, let's just gather data. All right, how do we, how are we oriented to that data? All right, let's make some key decisions and take action." And then see what happens and, and just go back to observing again. And they were able to iterate faster than, you know, the, the deer in the headlights crowd and the uh, the in motion crowd. Some of them did well. They were making good decisions, but a lot of them were just literally like spinning in circles. And they felt good that they weren't sitting around doing nothing, but yeah, they weren't making optimal choices because they didn't take the time 
to pause and think and see what was going on. So it was, I I would say it was the number one discipline that got our coaching community through. And and a lot of our coaches said to their clients who said to them, Hey, I don't know if I can pay you or or where we're going to be. Or they said, well, fine, we'll, we'll figure it out in the end. If I help you and you feel like we delivered value and you make it through, then we can talk about that. So a lot of our coaches did massive amount of pro bono work for clients that were paying them previously. And and I I haven't heard less than, I mean, maybe one or two stories where, you know, a a coach got taken advantage of the, the clients by and large were exceptional. Um, they're grateful. The customers are grateful for the work that was done and helped them, you know, again, coming back to that mindset, right. You're, you guys delivered confidence, which they were able to take to their, you know, employees or whatever the other, you know, the customers relationships were, and they were able to deliver that confidence to their folks. Um, yeah. And then we, you know, we took the program to groups of companies and Mm -hmm. stories came out of that where, where, Companies and industries that were getting demolished ended up two x, three x, ten x better. People. Yeah, after it was amazing to watch. So it's a mindset thing. It's uh, you know, control what you can control. It's like, all right, well, I can't control whether or not I can go to an office or go travel, but you know what we can do? You know, we can do this, that, and this, and we can conduct everything virtually. And I see that your upcoming scaling up, you know, is is June sixth through eighth. It's a virtual masterclass, so you're still doing that. You know, you're still pushing forward and, and making it work, even if not everybody can travel or it doesn't make sense from a financial perspective to, you know, get in yeah. play and that sort of thing. So, you know, we had early early on. We had Margaret Hefford on. She's a um, strategy professor from Harvard. We had her on a uh, a virtual event and. She came on and, and, you know, they were all like 20 minute talks. We had, you know, we had a bunch, Mark Cuban and a bunch of people, but, mm-hmm. um, but Margaret said something early on in the pandemic, it was probably May or June of 20. And I really believe it still exists today because of the world, the way the world shifted. She said, now's the time you can get anybody on the phone right now. She said, if you want the CEO of Ford, she's like, I can get the CEO of Ford on the phone. I couldn't have done that six months ago but I can get anybody right now. So if you've got an influencer or someone you want to build a relationship or if you can figure out a way to bring some value, which is always, always deliver value with no expectation of return, you can get anybody to, mm. to take some time. And I, that still exists today. I mean, we've, you know, I do m and I do a lot of work in, in corporate m and and it used to be at the, you know, at the get to know you stage. And if you were going to have five or six buyers in the get to know you stage, you were on five or six airplanes or I was flying mine five or six times to go meet. Yeah. Now all that's being done remote and you're not, you're not really meeting until you're down to the final one or two. The, the efficiency that's driven is amazing. Right. I mean, it's yeah. You, we can we all the same on. amount of hours in a day. Right. So if you're spending them, um, sleeping or on an airplane or not in touch. I mean, you're losing those hours. So this obviously is super helpful. Yeah. We can, we can now work on five deals at a time when it used to be two or three, just because of the efficiency from that. So I believe, I strongly believe this is the greatest time in the history of mankind to be an entrepreneur. And I know we've got inflation. That's a mindset, right? That's a mindset. It is. And negativity blocks creativity. And if your mindset's negative, 
Whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. You're right. Was that Henry so, Ford? <laughs> he also yeah. said you can have any color car you want as long as it's black. <laughs> exactly. No, yeah. I, uh, I, I believe, I mean, I believe that. I truly believe that, mm-hmm. you know, it's the best time in, in the history of the world to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, a lot of opportunity. Love it. Very cool. Yeah. Um, let's talk about that efficiency. And I'm seeing this as I'm looking up the virtual scaling up uh, classes here. Your meetings, right? You have these 11 minute meetings. You find them very useful. Um, instead of having one long hour meeting, well, maybe we have five 11 minute meetings a week. And I'm noticing, and I've read this in many books too, instead of starting a meeting at 930, your sessions for the scaling up start at 932. So talk to me about why that's effective. Yeah. So on the, on the timing thing, um, think about, think about the last nine thirty meeting you had or went to, or had to go to, or was called someone comes at nine twenty eight. someone strolls in at nine thirty two. like it's nine thirty ish. But when you have an exact minute, nine thirty two or nine seventeen, ours were nine Oh five at apple tree. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that, that, you know, that's the start and there's a discipline to start on time when you have an off time for your start time. So, um, and what you're talking about is, so the the scaling up methodology is really built around strategic planning. There's four components, people, strategy, execution, cash, strategic planning that's tied to some future goals and then reverse engineered to today. What do we need to do today, this week, this month, this quarter, this year to get to that future outcome? That's it in a total nutshell. And at the set at the center of it all is the ability to communicate that to the team. Like, what are our goals? How are we going to get there? What's, you know, what's the hill we want to take or, you know, the objective we want to, we want to achieve and how are we going to get there? And you can't do any of that unless you communicate effectively. If you believe in it takes six data points to see a pattern, the more frequently you're looking at data points, the faster you're going to see patterns in the business. So, if there's one thing we teach at scaling up that trumps everything else and our competitors don't teach it, um, we're, we're, we're one of the few that actually have this mindset, but the daily hub. So it's every day, every person in the company or, or as many of the leadership team as you can, but every person in the company that needs to be is in a quick check-in daily hub. It's not an hour meeting. I'm not trying to put more. In fact, the the mindset should be for every minute you spend in a daily, it should save you 10. Mm. So if you're spending 11 minutes every day in a huddle, it should save you 110 minutes a day. And, and our research clearly says that that's the case. So what happens in the daily huddle, it's a super simple agenda. Everyone comes with their number one priority for the day, but very specific. So it's not the marketing, the CMO saying, I'm working on the website today. It's, I've got seven pages of content, two on, um, you know, make it up, two on this, three on that. But she's given you the real details mm-hmm. that I will have published by four o'clock today. So super specific. Yep. So, and only one, I don't want your to-do list or the seven things that yeah. you're working on. Just tell me your number one. Everyone goes around and, and, in rapid fire and, and does that. Well, who cares what marketing's doing if you're the CFO or you're in 
operations or why does, you know, why does sales care what finance is working on? What happens though, over time, everyone in the company is getting the pattern recognition about the big picture. So everyone's making better decisions because they're connected to something like we talked about bigger than themselves. So if, if you know what's going on in every area and you might be able to, to either learn something or add some value. So, you know, imagine the sales guy says, Hey, you know, we, we've got the, the Morris company proposal. It's gone to Tina Smith. It's due by two o'clock, 1.67 million, um, over 36 months. And, and I, I might say, Tina Smith, what happened to Fred Jones? Oh, you didn't know Fred got fired. And you're not having a lot of dialogue in these meetings, but it could be, hey, can we catch up on that after? I thought it was 2.3 million. You're telling me 1.67. So everyone's getting status on everybody else's yeah. stuff. You as a leader get to hear the people that report to you how they're thinking about their most important priority for the day. I know you, you've got an, a proposal to get out that's going to be a half a million dollar premium for us. And you're telling me your most important thing today is, you know, to, to, to track down an unpaid invoice. Well, what about the proposal? Like, so everyone, yeah. like from a leader's perspective, it's amazing, but everyone's got to come to that meeting at least ready to say one thing that's a priority. So it disciplines people to think about, hell, what is my number one priority today? Yeah. I, don't, I don't normally... I normally come in, get some coffee, and just go to work. So it creates this massive amount of accountability and discipline. And you don't want to show up and look like inefficient or, or like you're mailing it in in front of your yeah. peers. Right? Like, like I don't want to show up and say my number one priority is to do X when I know that's the easy thing, but I, I have a really important Y that maybe I'm like putting off or procrastinating on. So it creates yeah. all that sort of level of accountability and discipline. It, Warren Buffett reads the headlines of the 500 top newspapers in the United States every day on the front page. He doesn't read the articles, but he reads every headline. The Daily Huddle is the headlines inside your company. And then everyone would leave, and I'll, I'll give you the rest of the agenda, but everyone would leave that 9.05, which ended at 9.16, which was 11 minutes, 11 people, one minute per person. They would leave, and then they would go to their next meeting. And do the same thing again. So by mm -hmm. 10 o'clock Eastern, we were totally status throughout the company. So the first thing you do is you do a round of number one priority. Yeah. Um, if you have a handful of metrics that you track on a daily basis, or if there's a rock in your shoe that you're having a hard time <laughs> getting solved, yeah. then you should report on that, report out on that every day. So the example we give there is imagine if you've got seven openings job openings and you're having a hard time filling these we we need to hire seven salespeople. So imagine the, the VP sales every day we have seven openings next day, seven openings, next day, seven openings, next day, seven openings. Hey, he's gonna be tired of saying we have seven openings every yeah. day. And the rest of the team is going to be tired of hearing it. And eventually the the entrepreneur or the CEO is going to be like, okay, what are we doing to fix this problem? So there's that just articulating yeah. it and getting it out again, six data points to see a pattern. So by the following Monday, we've seen that pattern. If you're reporting out on that weekly, it's going to take six weeks. And if you report out monthly, it's going to take six months to see that hiring problem pattern. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's that. And then the last thing you do is you go around 
And again, rapid fire. And it can be more than one or it doesn't have to be one from everyone. Where are you stuck? What are your stucks? Hey, I just can't get Jill Smith to call me back. She's past due 60 days, left her 15 messages. And I might go, oh, Jill Smith, she's she's had major surgery. She's not even there. Mm-hmm. Hey, catch up with me after. I've got it. I'll help you with that. So again, by reporting them all out, doesn't mean you're there to solve them. You're just there to articulate them and put them out into the universe. And, and by articulating them, oftentimes they get solved way faster than if you just are frustrated and sit on them. Yeah, it certainly paints a picture of what's going on. It helps you all visualize throughout the week how it's going, what the final outcome is kind of going toward, you know, what you're going to look like in a month or whatever, or even at the end of the week, all the things yep. you accomplished. Um, it's also kind of a trick too, because I try to have three main things that I solve a week. And if we do four of those a week, I'm going to solve four of them. So I just got an extra 25% work done. Yeah, exactly. And, and again, there's discipline around accomplishment. And accountability. Yeah. Yeah. If here's what I'll say, if there's anyone listening that, has ever had a problem at their place with no one ever told me that, or I didn't know about that, or no one ever tells me anything. This solves that problem forever. Yeah. You will never hear that again. If you get a disciplined daily huddle going, you'll never hear. I didn't know about that, yeah. which drives me crazy. Absolutely. By the way. So I have say there's, there's four of us on our team on my specific team. Would I just hold a four minute meeting? Yeah. Daily yeah. Huddle, four minutes. A minute each. Okay. And I would start it at oh some other some other thing. If you have to do it on Zoom or a conference call, somebody's responsible for us. Someone opened our conference. We had two people that that dialed in and nine people that um that were in person. Okay. And at nine o'clock every morning, our office manager would open the conference bridge in the conference room. And then we would all filter in, and at 9.05 and zero seconds, we'd start, all right, who wants to go first? No, oh, how's it going? Are are you there in Atlanta? Like, none of that, like, pleasant stuff. And it was at 9.05, all right, Emily, and Emily was one of the ones dialing in. Hey, Em, why don't you start us off? Then we knew she was there or not there. Okay, Em's Mm -hmm. not there. Kevin, go ahead. And so – Interestingly, we had a client that um, we took to market. We helped them sell their company. And I've been trying to talk them into a daily huddle while we worked with them for like a year. And we're sitting around the closing table. And and it was a major transaction. And one of the two partners was lamenting. He goes, I just don't feel like we're like we go fast enough in, in our business. Meanwhile, they were. They were growing like crazy. They, were, they, they ran like a Swiss watch. He's like, I don't think we're going fast enough. And I said to him, and I won't say his name just in case this it's a local guy. I said, you know, if you did the daily huddle, you start your day pulsing fast and you don't have to do your daily in the morning, but I think the morning is the time, but you can do it at five o'clock at night. Yeah. But if you start your day with a daily huddle and it's in your case, four minutes or five minutes and it's stand up and it's rapid fire. You are starting your day with peace. Yeah. And I said to him, I go, if I promise you, if you start with the senior team and you cascade it down, they had about probably 300 salaried employees. So it was three huddles would cascade through the 300 by like 745 in the morning. 
And I taught, and so we're sitting around the table. I go, if you just do the daily huddle, you'll start so much faster. And after a year of trying to convince him, he goes, all right, why don't you come in next week and train all of our people on uh, the meeting rhythms, daily huddle for me. I'm like, you son of a bitch. Like I've been trying <laughs> for a year. And now that this big fat wire's coming now, now you're ready to like, and they were staying on, they rolled over equity and yeah, they, but they quintupled quit with a Q five yeah. X wow. business from about a 11 million to about 50 million ish four and a half X in 30 months, 30 months from imagine if they, imagine if they took the call earlier from the day they got sold until, until their exit. Yeah, no. And, wow. And, but they were, he, they were amazed. He's like, I can't believe at how fast okay. we pace now that we didn't before. And it just starts your day with such a great routine. So I'm a, no one will ever talk me out of the daily huddle as the most important habit in scaling up hands down. If you're not going to do anything else, put the huddle in place. Love it. We had it at Align Space. We were we were double over budget and and months and months and months behind with no end in sight. And finally, I got fed up, and I said, "Anyone's going to work on this project going forward? Seven fifty eight a.m. You're going to be in a daily huddle, and that's everybody, all the subs, and the, of course the plumbers. Like, well, I'm only working on the plumbing, and the glass guys like, well, I'm only doing the glass and. No, I said, well, then then you're going to be fired and we're bringing other subs in. <laughs> and sure enough, five weeks later, project's done. And every guy that was in that daily huddle, the moment where we knew it was right was we, we, we couldn't get this one glass door that we needed. And we're on the daily and it's the guy stuck and it's been stuck for like seven days in a row. And the plumber goes... He goes, do you think a shower door, like a really like commercial shower door would work in that scenario? And he's like, they go up, they're like, I don't know, catch up with me after, we'll measure. Two days later, we had a commercial shower door problem (laughs) solved. And it was the plumber who didn't want to be on the huddle and the glass guy who didn't want to be on the huddle. And solved it. We, We get done and they're like, they all said, we will never do another construction project without a daily huddle. That's how powerful it can be. When done well. I love so, it. Well, yeah. I'm going to start my huddle tomorrow. Um, and I think that also brings in the OODA loop is, is all involved in that too. Uh, it is. Dude, that's so exciting. That's It's so be super. The key is where the huddle falls apart is when you just get around and you're, you do generalities. Like mm. back to the yeah. seven people. We all know there's seven open jobs. We don't need to say it. It's the saying it and the specificity that matters. And so... If you find yourselves, yeah, I'm, you know, I got two podcasts today. Yeah. No, I've got a podcast with John from Line Five. Here's his backstory. And that's at one o'clock. And then I have another one at three o'clock with here's their backstory and here's the objective. Like be really specific. It's like the smart goal, right? Specific, you know, measurable, measurable Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So exactly. okay. Awesome. Well, hey, I know you have plenty more to do today. I think you're late <laughs> for your next meeting. I appreciate yeah, it. Um this is a lot of fun. Thank you. And I'll come in and I would love to grab a coffee with you and, uh, you know, do this again. I still have more questions we didn't cover. Um, give me real quick. I want uh, two rapid fire questions. If you got a minute. Sure. Who's your favorite entrepreneur? 
Uh, man, that's a good one. Actually, you know, I, I normally say Richard Branson, but um, Jimmy Buffett is my favorite okay. entrepreneur. Okay. And I'll tell you why, because if you, you know, if you really know music well, he's pretty mediocre in terms of talent. His voice is, is definitely mediocre, <laughs> but. Um, but he understands his customer, his core customer, better than just about anyone I've ever seen. Mm. And he's able to take mediocre talent and a mediocre voice and turn it into a billion dollars in net worth by knowing everything there is to know about the customer, mm. which I think is fascinating. Absolutely. I never really thought about Jimmy Buffett in that way. And uh, it certainly makes sense. I mean, you know, he's he's probably almost as known as like McDonald's. Yeah. Well, he got, he's been sought out by Mick Jagger and Paul McCartney and all these guys that are like, how how did you create this movement? You never win any awards. You're never on the yeah. radio. Like, think about that. Jimmy Buffett's <laughs> built a billion dollar business. You never hear it on the. I mean, every once in a while you get Margaritaville, but yeah, it's pretty amazing. That is interesting. Right. Question number two is: What is your most recommended or most gifted book? So I think every entrepreneur is doing themselves a disservice if they haven't read the E-Myth. I think the E-Myth is kind of the OG of hmm. books for entrepreneurs. The E-Myth one. Revisited by Michael Gerber is the exact title. And the E-Myth is as simple as it gets. He walks you through uh, uh, the story of a woman that owns a pie shop and just how, you know, like, you know, cakes and pies and how she thinks about it. But he does such an articulate job of expressing how important it is to be consistent and predictable and, you know, how to run a business like a Swiss watch. And in all my M&A work, the ones that run like Swiss watches sell for way more than the ones that are making it up every day. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, it's, it's simple and it's simplistic, but it, the message is so, so important. I think everybody, every entrepreneur should read the email through visit it. Perfect. We'll do. John, I appreciate you, man. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, Kyle. Thanks for having me. Happy to do it again. You just let me know. All right. We will. We'll do it in your uh, your podcast room. Sounds perfect. <laughs> thanks, John. Have a good one. All right. You See got you. it. Cheers. Bye. Take care. All right, that'll do it for today's show. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to follow on Apple Podcasts. Leave a review. That'll help us get found by other fantastic people like yourself. I don't monetize this, so all I ask is that if you like it, share it with someone else who might like it. Connect with me on Instagram at Beer Mighty Things Podcast. Catch you all next time. Cheers and Beer Mighty Things.